According to data from the National Association of Realtors, in 2021, 41% of home buyers and sellers found their real estate agent through a friend, neighbor, or relative. If those same 41% of people found their real estate agent through Climate Change Realty, we could have donated more than $12 billion to nonprofit organizations working on fighting climate change. Welcome to the podcast. Emma, so nice to meet you. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Excited for a chat. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. It's lovely to connect with you too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we always love to get the show started with a bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, no problem. So I'm a science communicator in the UK. Uh, my background is in biological sciences. So I studied that for my undergraduate and then did a master's in science communication. And now I spend my life helping nature and climate organizations communicate and nature and climate scientists communicate uh, their research and their work with the general public and try and kind of sit between those two worlds, connect them up a little bit more and make them a, a bit more kind of, yeah, make them work together a little bit. So where do you think your interest in the natural world came from like originally? When did you first, when you, can you think back to a time when you were like, whoa, nature, amazing. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think there's ever been like one specific time where I've gone, oh, wait a minute, like this is awesome. And this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to immerse myself in. I've just always been interested in how things work and the kind of prevailing thing of studying biology and and science is asking how do things work and why and how do things all connect together and the most exciting thing for me to understand of how things will connect together is the world around me and I think you know it's it's at any age and at any level you can go outside and watch something happen or watch a bird or as simple as like see what's going on in the soil or watch the weather patterns and um, you can connect with nature and the environment in so many different ways I think it's just always been a part of my life there's never really been one moment where I've gone oh maybe I'll do this. Right. It's just always been the, the path. Uh, I love it. How did you transition from studying science to switching to wanting to be like a science communicator? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and one I get asked quite a lot, actually, because I think science communication, although it's becoming a bit more recognized as a career path and a thing that you can do now, when I was going through my undergraduate, it wasn't so much um, it wasn't as tied to the, the research side of things as so it didn't really appear as an option as much. So when I was studying, I loved what I was learning and I loved talking to people about what I was learning, but I didn't really enjoy the kind of the lab side of things. That wasn't really for me. I really hate statistics. So the idea of going into being a research scientist, to me, what that looked like was, well, I have to be in labs and I have to be doing statistics. So I don't want to do that. And I was just generally interested in writing. Uh, so I went and did some internships and I started talking to some people and eventually this kind of field emerged of science communication. And I was like, oh, hang on. This is the marry of two things that I love. I love talking to people about what we're doing. I love sharing all of the amazing, cool things that are going on in the world of science. I love helping people learn more and understand more about nature and the world around us. And, and I can do that by doing science communication. So. Okay. I love it. All right. So let's, let's start this off with, with a big question I love to ask, or I love to think about. It's like, what do you think is the most pressing challenge of our time? And what are your thoughts about how we can tackle large, you know, some people might call them wicked problems like these. Oh, that's, I mean, that's such a good question. And I was having a think about this. And you know what? I think the biggest problem in our time is nature connection and the lack therein that we all have. And the fact that we've all, the, particularly in the West, the way that we've built our lives in the last kind of century has, has disconnected us from, from nature, from the land, from the seasons, from everything that we are, we've kind of disconnected from. We live in concrete structures and we do our best not to get wet or go outside or, or anything. And, you know, we all wear like um, noise cancelling headphones. So we don't even hear the birdsong, these kind of things. So, and because we've done that over several generations now, there's you don't have that kind of um, like ancestral, like if your mum wasn't taught by her mum what the birds were, she's not going to teach you what the birds are, that kind of thing. And I think broadly, this means that we're not looking after the land. We're not interested in the land. We're not interested in the wildlife around us. And we don't even notice that it's in decline. We don't understand how important it is that we're looking after the ecosystem. And therefore, when we're told, hey, guys, the, you know, the climate's changing. Biodiversity is in a global crisis. It doesn't really feel like it's a we don't notice it. And B, it doesn't really feel like you know, it's kind of like, well, what does it do to me? What's you know, what's the difference? I live in my kind of my concrete jungle. So what? if it gets right. a little bit hotter. So I, I think that if everybody, if we were able to reconnect large swathes of society 
with nature more on some level. I think everybody would be kinder, everybody would be more compassionate. I think people's well-being would be infinitely better. And I think that trickle, probably trickle up and trickle down through society would probably make people act in better ways, not just for the planet, but for everyone else around us. So that's that's my thing. I think that we need to address nature connection as the root of a lot of the things that have gone wrong. Totally. And I love when you talk about human well-being. Um, and the thing about the nature connection is that we are, are part of nature as well. So I wonder if you think it's more about us having a disconnection from the external world or a disconnection with, with really ourselves, because we're, we're constantly running, running, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I think there's a lot of this idea of staying busy and not thinking about your own mortality, but really like that, we're all part of this giant system, this web of life that transform into something else. And that's like, not cool to talk about, like in your daily life, you like, you can't like show up, go, go to the water cooler and be like, Hey man, you know, this is all like, is this a simulation? Like, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You you're going like, to get laughed at you. Somebody's going to call you a hippie and tell you to go and hug a tree. And you're like, I mean, sure. I'd happily go and hug a tree, but also I'm making a very useful point here. Like you're completely right. We are nature and that's what we've forgotten. Yeah. Well, we're like you right now we're breathing oxygen. We're pumping blood. We're, um, I don't know if the word is like metabolizing food. We're turning different living creatures into ourselves and people don't think about that. Not only do they not think about the external world around them, they don't think about the fact that they're like a living being because that's like scary or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I think because as humans, we like to think we're above everything. And maybe that's got us into the state where we have kind of monopolized the world, this kind of concept that we're bigger and better and we're the apex and we're smarter than everything. And we can dominate nature. So, yeah, maybe maybe that's completely it. We don't want to associate that we are nature because we've spent so many generations convincing ourselves that we're bigger and better than and separate too right what, what are your thoughts on how we can kind of fix this issue and i'm big on not forcing people to do things giving people like options not like being like hey this is for your own good do this i'm more about like hey like i'm living like this i'm having a good time would you want to have a good time you should do this so i was like what are your thoughts on kind of bridging this we could call it like a gap or like a disconnect yeah oh man that's so hard um I like as much as I would love to like change school curriculum and um, make nature embedded in people's lives at a, at a much earlier age, because especially when we're children, we haven't really lost that amazing sense of wonder that you can get just digging around in the dirt and finding a worm and then like learning what a worm does or what a beetle does. So like if we could catch people at a younger age and kind of capitalize, which is a horrible word, but do you know what I mean? Like foster and nurture and really embed that kind of part of them so that it becomes something that they're interested in, or at least they take more kind of care of as they grow up. I think that would be really useful. But then maybe that comes under the bracket of forcing people to do stuff if I'm going ahead and changing curriculum and getting kids outside more. But I don't know, it's such a hard question. I don't know how we tackle it on a large scale. Well, I say that because I, I don't personally, I hated school and I don't like to be told what to do. But at a certain point, there are systems that need to be created and you can't just be, throw a kid out into the middle of the forest and let him go figure it out for himself if he's like three years old. You know what I mean? So I, I don't take it like to the extreme, like let everyone figure it out on this. There are still, <laughs> we, we still need to like create systems that can help people. But yeah, we don't learn about really useful things, at least in the US education system. It would be great to have more like nature education for sure but even just topics about how to have morality and empathy like that that's like reserved to like religious institutions but i really it doesn't have to be like a religious doctrine just the idea that hey if you help someone else they will help you we instead of like just focusing on rigid like geometry or something like that you know having a class where you i don't know i'm just spitting ideas you can get me going on the school stuff <laughs> um i like it we should set up a school yeah. Well, <laughs> one project at a time, Emma, please. Um, so, so why don't you tell me about kind of like your day-to-day -day life and your work, like what you do as a science communication consultant? Um, so I work on a whole bunch of different projects, really. So the day can vary quite a lot, which is the sort of thing I really enjoy. So on one hand, I work with some nature environment organizations to produce to physically produce the content so things like podcasts and video or like school resources that kind of thing or uh, in some other aspects I am um, you know managing websites running press releases that kind of thing and in some areas I'm kind of strategizing uh, and kind of sat more on that side of things where I'm planning the comm strategy and what's going on and 
yeah and we've got some exciting projects coming up and things and you know one thing I'm really excited about if we're talking about nature connection is an app that I'm starting to develop with a climate change research center in Sweden which is designed to um enhance the experience that we've got when we have visitors up to this national park where the research center is it's kind of enhancing their experience when they're out enjoying the trails that they're already are already popular and people are going but just kind of um so you you basically get like a, a sound prompt or a video prompt on your phone when you reach a gps location so that it just adds that extra layer of slightly knowledge slight nature connection uh, to to their experience where hopefully that will help to foster an even stronger connection for them with nature with the experience and also with the, the kind of their role in it and taking care of the landscape that they're enjoying so it's really varied i do quite a lot of different things but that's that's the way i like it when you say we are you working with like a communication consultant company or are you like running your own practice no i, I do my own thing i am uh, very awesome. very yeah well, i work with some really really cool projects but i yeah i'm, I'm on my own as it were. i quite like um being a one-man band sometimes I, I mean i have some fantastic collaborators but I'm brought on as a consultant for most of the things that I do. So you essentially look at projects that you like and offer to help them. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And sometimes they say to me, hey, I've got something cool. And I think you're the right person for the job. Okay. Well, that's awesome. That's really awesome. What have you found is the best way to actually have a message reach like the general public, whether it's on like a project or a specific discovery that you're trying to promote? What did you found is the most effective means for getting a message out to a large audience? This is like the million dollar question though, isn't it? And I don't, I don't have the answer to this. If I did, maybe my consultancy firm would be much bigger. Um, right, just I, give it some I, time. Yeah, hey, uh, circle back in a year. Um, I don't, I don't think there is one size fits all. And I think that's the most, important thing to remember that one thing that works on one campaign or one project is not necessarily going to work on the other because you have to focus on the audience that you want to speak to you have to speak to them on their level on the platform that they enjoy interacting with and you have to make things easy and relevant to them because if you're asking people to do things you're already putting up a barrier whereas if you're just talking to people and making it really easy for them to engage with your conversation then you're more likely to you know, set off a little light bulb somewhere and, and get them more engaged and, and help them more gently along the journey of whatever it is you're trying to shuffle them through or towards. That's my advice. Just always be focused on the audience rather than your own kind of marketing outputs and objectives, I think sometimes can be a bit of a, you know, especially when um, people assign numbers to things, you know, I want X amount of views or X amount of likes, or this has to be delivered X amount of times. Um, I think that ignores the value of, each of those clicks or likes or deliveries. I think the value is in the engagement and the conversations that you start and the quality of those. So that needs to be the focus. All right. As I like to say, the, the hearts that you touch, but yeah, um, that's nice. Yeah. I like, yeah. People call me corny. It's good to be corny because if you're being corny, you're, you're, um, you're regurgitating wisdom that has been relevant for, for centuries or millennia. So I think it's actually pretty good to be corny because there's a reason people say things over and over again like treat others how you want to be treated like love is the most love is the answer love words it's it's it has meaning um so <laughs> I, i'm like you i do like to do a bunch of different things every day but have like a clear vision like your, your vision is to help advance scientific causes or stewardship or whatever i'm wondering if you have like a favorite type of project or favorite like task that you like to do Oh, I mean, I love podcasting. So I think podcasting is a really exciting medium Same. for getting interesting. Yeah, I can see you're lighting up. This is great. Um, this I got is, the good I think lights. it's such a the cool way to. <laughs> it's such a cool way to talk to people, though, isn't it? Because it's such an intimate medium. Because people are allowing you into the uh, your into their ears and into their time, and it's ungatekeepered as well. We don't have to go through like if we wanted to write for a newspaper, the gatekeepers are the editors and the newspaper the media agenda. Whereas any old pleb like you and I, um, or some of the organisations that I work for, or whoever you're working with the gatekeeper is ourselves we can generate the content which means we can be really creative with it we can use it to talk to fantastic people who you know if um if you if there was someone on your kind of like i would love to talk to list that if you were making a film or something you'd need like a whole day of their time they wouldn't give it to you but if you're just saying listen can you just jump on a call with me really quickly i'll talk to you for an hour it's easier for you to connect with them and to be able to get them to connect with your audience and stuff so i think i think podcasting is such a fun experience for me and um like i mentioned with the app that we're developing as well a lot of that's audio um kind of content that we're generating and i just think there's so much fun you can have with audio and it can be really immersive 
and it gets yeah. people away from a screen as well I don't I you know I don't want people to be sat inside just watching nature documentaries I want people to be outside and engaging with things and when you're listening to a podcast you can be anywhere doing anything and I, I really like that idea I, I, I love my podcast is like the favorite, my favorite thing that I do. Not that I don't love like creating donations and creating a positive impact, but um, I really like engaging in dialogue and I'm going to, I'm going to have to adopt that uh, Ethan Shapiro, any old pleb um, from now on. <laughs> um, it, oh, it's I'm sorry. So, That's a, a very British phrase to have brought in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I basically lived with Brits for like two years or more, but uh, we're not going to get too deep into that. Um <laughs> What kind of trends are you seeing right now, at least even in Europe and the UK, when it comes to the general public's perception around stewardship and climate change like adaptations? I think, and perhaps this is from like quite a hopeful perspective, but I think we are seeing a lot of increased interest, uh, both in environmental issues, but on the flip side, in uh, kind of personal responsibility and individual action, which is positive for me. I, I'm, I'm very pleased to see people start, you know, asking the question what can I do about it beyond just thinking oh my god this is bad have you heard about this and that and the other so I think that's really exciting but also we're starting to see more people calling out greenwashing calling out brands and realizing that actually collectively as individuals when we all bandy together or when we do use our voice we can have a say I think that's particularly obvious when we look at kind of the youth because um, the youth of today are incredibly politically active you know you just need to look at Greta Thunberg and look at the way that she's inspired school children to feel and to realize that they are not just irrelevant because they're you know not quite adults yet but actually they can have a huge huge impact and she's going to be generating an amazing group of the leaders of tomorrow which I'm really excited for leaders of today as far as I'm concerned I think today, kids, yeah. have, kids have the best ideas I'm trying to stay kid as long as I can not I like if if I like a kid who isn't being told what to do, that's like me. Like I want to be a kid, but I don't want to have like the restrictions of the adults telling you what to do. That's like the perfect medium. That sounds um, good to me. What are your thoughts on like these large companies using carbon, cred carbon credits to like say that they're decarbonizing? And I find it really strange that they, they do this and then, but they just go to net zero. And it's just like, if you're not even really decarbonizing your actions and you're just paying someone else with your billions of dollars that you make from whether it's oil extraction or, or some other financial thing, and you're not, you're like, you're not even drawing down, you're like, oh, we're just going to go to net zero. I feel like if they were going to do that, they should at least go like like time and a half. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if they, if they <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, like draw down on 150 if they emit 100. I was just, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in the middle here. No, that's, that's such a frustrating concept to kind of look at, isn't it? Carbon credits. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm a carbon credit expert. I don't know everything there is to know about carbon credits, but my general understanding and concept of them is that there is a place for them. Um, and I think if done right and if communicated well, they, they can be very useful. Uh, but like you've kind of alluded to, most of the time it appears that actually they're just viewed as like a greenwashing, get out of jail free card, um, as opposed to, okay, I'm changing my actions slowly. I can't do that fast enough. So what I'm going to do in the meantime is support, um, you know, carbon drawdown schemes and earn these carbon credits. But like you said, I think they're just becoming um, an excuse for business as normal. And we know that business as normal cannot continue. We can't sustain the way that we live currently will, you know, there's going to be a massive collapse of like the biosphere. So right. they do frustrate me. They do What's frustrate me now? endlessly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually there, there's a huge place for carbon credits. Um, I don't want, I, I really actually believe a lot in carbon credits because I'm a big finance guy and I cannot think of another way to, I'm always trying to monetize environmental stewardship and it's so hard because nature Nature doesn't price things, but it does use everything. But these, it's just these companies, they need to change the way they behave. And they, they can't just use money to, to, you can't just throw money at it. You need to actually have smart people in the company making changes. And I feel like, I don't know, it's, it's just something, something I need to put more, more thought into, I guess. Um, as far as like actual environmental focal points that we can focus on at, from a science background, are there any, yeah, I call them like focal points in, in my mind. I think of like 
peat bogs in the in the north that are like melting and releasing even more co2 or i just had this awesome episode on mangrove forests which these trees can sequester like five times as much carbon as other trees are there any kind of environmental focus points that come to mind when and your thoughts on mitigating like extreme climate change Oh man, peat bogs, you've picked one of my favorite things there. Peat bogs and permafrost, basically everything soil related is like, is something that I'm so interested in. The problem is because we all think of, you know, carbon sequestration really being let's plant trees and let's save the rainforest. And yes, absolutely. Those are good things when done properly. I'm not saying that we shouldn't plant trees, but like there are so many other amazing environmental mechanisms that if we support can help us manage the climate crisis um, better and in a more natural way. Like restoring our peat bogs, they capture so much carbon. And um, like you said there with the, the positive feedback mechanism of permafrost, when that melts, the amount of carbon that has been stored for centuries in some cases, millennia probably, um, starts to starts to be released. You know, it's, it's not just a case of we need to use them to store carbon. We actually need to actively stop them being degraded because they become a carbon sink as or carbon source as well as whereas they could be a carbon sink when they're healthy so yeah things like peat bogs and permafrost they're not sexy you're not going to find them on a poster it's really hard to find like good documentaries about them because attenborough's not going looking at peat bogs even though i think that he should be you know um it's it's looking beyond the kind of like big headline cool things to some of the actually very cool but not sexy things and also seagrass you know i think seagrass is an amazing thing and 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 again this kind of looks at soil but the seabed version of it um restoring things like our natural kelp and seagrass forests is a fantastic way to be capturing carbon in the marine ecosystem as well is there any sort of like way we can stop the like the permafrost that's the i keep saying peat bogs but permafrost is like the big yeah it's up in the north is there any way to stop them from like degrading without just being like we need to stop the temperature from rising is there any like other things that you we could do are they like um, extracting stuff from there? I don't think so, right? No. So one of the main, one of the other ways for uh, permafrost to be thawing um, is, uh, is is kind of the, the march of the tree line is moving forward. So as, as the climate warms, trees are then able to grow further and further north because the soil warms and they can move into permafrost. And the problem with that is as soon as the trees start growing in the permafrost, then the permafrost definitely doesn't freeze. And all of this microbial activity that has been brought in by the trees is able to happen. And that's when it all starts to basically burp methane and carbon dioxide. Um, So we need to kind of stop trees from growing in areas. But one of the other things that trees also do is they trap snow. And um, you might think that, you know, you want trapped snow in the winter over permafrost because the snow will keep it cold. But actually with the level of kind of temperatures being so cold in places like the Arctic, it acts as a blanket and actually has like an insulatory effect and keeps the permafrost slightly warmer than it would otherwise. So because we're also seeing more vegetation growing in these high kind of climates, um, we're also seeing much more of kind of an insulatory effect, which again is kind of exacerbating how much it's melting. So there, there are things, um, but they're not necessarily going to save the permafrost if we just chop down all the trees. Right. Are you familiar with the term zombie fires? No, what's a zombie fire? It sounds terrifying. So, so this is from, yeah, well, it's it's worse than it sounds, I think. Um, well, I mean, there's not actual zombies, but um, that'd be pretty bad. <laughs> Um, that was like from like one of my first episodes with um, Merit Turetsky. She's the director of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. So she's a peat bog expert. And Ooh. there are these fires like roaring in, in the north that obviously releases all this carbon and then it gets cold and the fires are supposed to stop. But they what they do is they tunnel underneath the peat and because there's so much, you know, there's such a rich source of fuel under there. They just burn through the the winter and then when it comes time for summer, you know, and, you know, once a like a pocket of air comes up, it just it's the, so the fire never goes out. And that's why it's called oh like a gosh. zombie fire. Yeah, I, I didn't know it was called a zombie fire. That's that's quite cool uh, in terms of branding, but quite horrifying in terms <laughs> of what it actually is. Yeah, I don't know if she I don't I, I don't know if she made I doubt that she made that up, but um, she, she might she might. She's like, I call it zombie fire. I, I don't know. But that was yeah, that was some crazy stuff. Um. So the soil science thing is very interesting. I was talking to a, a mycology expert actually in the UK who's starting a company called Rhizocore Technologies. And what I asked him was, is there like a limit to the amount of like soil we can have? And he said, no. Do you, do you, do you know anything about that? 
No, I can't say that I know much about the limit on soil quantities. Well, as in just like stacked above like the bedrock, yeah. you can just keep having loads and loads more. Well, that's cool. It's what makes me think about this idea that we that a lot of conservationists and people who are passionate about the environment are like, we need to have less people, we need to do less things, we need to use less energy. But then when I think about this idea that all of life, first off, the soil, there's a soil crisis going on that we need to mm. fix. Um but all of life begins in the soil. We eat the food from the soil. The sun comes and all the micro microbacteria grows in there. If the idea is that if like, if we just kept feeding the soil instead of, it would just be an increasing layer. It just makes me think there's more and more propensity or capacity for life on earth. Um, so it's like, if we, it's almost, you know, it's never easy with the climate change stuff, but it's always trying to find ways to like, find like a simple thing that we can do over and over again to like create a positive impact, you know? Yeah, definitely make more soil, but also heavily restore the incredibly damaged soils that we've got now is, is such a priority. I think the way that we've been kind of dealing with land, um, particularly in kind of Western farming practices, we do not have soil anymore. We just have dirt and, and it's, it's a real shame. But yeah, if we can restore our soils, we'd be in a much better situation, both in terms of how we feed ourselves, but also in terms of biodiversity and climate mitigation for sure. Yeah. So when it goes back to the idea of just like trying to come up with some s simple answer, I just, feel, you know, I, I call it like enlightened self-interest, just like the idea of always giving back more than you take, give back more than the soil than you take give back more to your neighbor than you take, give back more in your business than you take. It just seems like the universal answer to everything, but, but I don't know. Um, cool. Why don't you tell me about dynamic dunescapes? Cause that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So this is a, a big um, sand dune, coastal sand dune restoration project in the UK. That's um, uh, it's, it's kind of the, the child almost of lots of different major um, conservation organizations in the UK. And this is essentially to try and restore large parts of our coastal sand dune ecosystems, because in Europe, I don't know if this is the same um, over with you guys in the States, but in Europe, coastal sand dunes have been listed as one of the most threatened habitats for biodiversity loss of all of the habitat types in Europe. Um, and nobody really thinks about sand dunes there. Again, they're not one of the kind of sexy landscapes. And most people just walk through a sand dune to get to the beach. Nobody really, I think, uh, connects very much with the fact that they should be huge, huge reserves for fantastic wildlife, particularly things like insects, which then support birds and amazing numbers of wildflowers and things, because there's, there's basically so many species that have adapted to live in shifting sand that now that our sands are no longer shifting, we're seeing like a, a huge increase in vegetation in all of our sand dunes. Because we've lost that shifting sand habitat, we're also losing loads and loads of species at a, at a very dramatic rate. So Dynamic Dunescapes is a project which is aiming to try and restore these um, sand dune habitats in order to support biodiversity. And the more that we support biodiversity, the better these habitats will be able to handle all the challenges thrown at them in the coming climate crisis, current climate crisis. Um, so yeah, it's quite an interesting project, actually. It's another another coastal ecosystem, which I've really enjoyed learning more about. So you're trying to support them by getting them to shift again? Yeah, right? so this is, yeah, that's pretty, pretty much, we need to encourage more areas of bare sand. So this can kind of come in the form of turf stripping, um, where we go in with diggers and we take a whole load of the turf that has kind of grown on top of the sand, which it really shouldn't have, um, to expose the bare sand. Because a lot of the wildflowers and things that are designed to grow or designed have adapted to grow in sand dune habitats need really, really poor soil. And they need like some of them even like thrive on sand being dumped on them. And that's the kind of niche that they occupy. But then as we get more and more vegetation uh, growing, uh, obviously more organic matter is put down and kind of a, a layer of soil is formed. Now, what would originally happen back in the day when everything was kind of a bit more utopian. We'd have lots of things like grazing animals, uh, which would constantly churn up a bit of the sand dune. Uh, the vegetation wouldn't be growing so much. And we also didn't have invasive species. So we wouldn't have basically as much kind of plant growth laying down this layer of soil. So although you've said you want more soil, we, we do want more soil, just not on sand dunes. Um, so one of the things we do is we remove some of the layers of turf because then we've got all of this bare sand habitat, which means that all of these wildflowers and little niche things can recolonize that habitat. But also things like lizards and um, beetles and wasps and bees, which burrow in the bare sand, can actually access the bare sand in order to start the next cycle of their life. Um, so that's one of the things. And then also, you know, removing invasive species and getting rid of things like scrub and willow 
Um, there's quite a lot of different things, but yeah, the, the overarching thing is remobilizing sand dunes in, in some areas, which is why it's called dynamic dunescapes, because they're supposed to be landscapes that are dynamic. And mm. over the year, they shift with the weather. Um, but we've kind of, we've allowed them not to do that for a long time. So now we're trying to remobilize them. Is this it's an project- interesting concept. It is. It is an interesting concept. It's about this, this idea that I can never forget. This guy Phil, Phil had said from Mad Agriculture about what does the land want to be if you can like listen to it. And I think that's a lot with like indigenous knowledge. It's like listening to the land and what it wants to be. Is this project specifically based in the UK? This is in England and Wales, but the way that we're funded is brilliant. So we're funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, which is in the UK, but we're also funded by the EU Life Programme, which means that we're connected with colleagues and other projects all across Europe because of this European designation that coastal sand dunes are in trouble. Loads of projects in the UK have applied for the same batches of funding to support the restoration of these types of habitats. So actually, we've got this amazing kind of network of people all trying to do the same thing. But I only work on England and Wales. And what are you doing for them? communications so talking to the public about um why sand dunes are important the things that live there the threats that they're facing and why it's really important that we're going in with diggers and doing some things that look really dramatic because a lot of the time people will have spent it's, it's like shifting baseline syndrome if you've always walked in the sand dunes and to you they've always been really vegetated and you've not really heard very much bird song but that's what you think it should be because that's how you've always known it so it's then talking to people who have always known that sand dunes in that current state and explaining to them that actually now ecology tells us that this is not how they should be and we can make them way better but this is why we're coming in with diggers this is why we're stripping out all the scrub and the invasive species that aren't supposed to be there even if you think this invasive species looks really pretty it's incredibly damaging to like bird life so it's engaging them in that conversation and talking to them about you know why we're doing what we're doing and bringing them on board and helping them become custodians of the landscape that they love uh, without just like wading in and doing something that looks very dramatic is the science like definitely settled on that like how did they come to that conclusion I mean, science is never settled. This is the thing, especially with things like ecology. Like we literally never, we always know more than we did before. Um, So in maybe 30, 40 years time, maybe we'll know something different. But the key with this project is that most recently in the last 30 years, the science has pointed towards, we need to remobilize our sand dunes. So we do have a thorough scientific kind of backing to this. But it's interesting because, you know, 40, 50 years ago, we looked at the process of succession, which is how sand dunes are formed. Uh, you know, you have your four dunes, which are just basically windblown sand and then slowly you get marram grasses growing. And then that solidifies the sand just enough so that other pioneer species can grow. And then behind that, it becomes more and more solid. And we looked at this way that sand dune systems become more and more solid. And we thought, okay, well, clearly the solidified kind of sense, like that must be the utopia. That must be what we're aiming for. So we'll plant loads more grasses and we'll try and help that process along. So then management back then was like planting more grasses, planting trees that aren't even native to the area because we thought that was what we needed. And then as soon as we started to solidify our dunes, we realized that we lost tons of biodiversity. Now we've got all of that data saying, nope, shouldn't have done that. Let's go and undo that and let's try and remobilize them. And this project's being paid for by the British government and some EU committee, you said? Uh, so the National Lottery Heritage Fund is not the government. That's um, people play the lottery in the UK. And then a lot of the funds that oh. aren't won are, charity, are pushed into charitable projects. Um, all of the partners of the organisations have contributed time and money to it as well. But yeah, also the EU Life Programme, which is part of the European Commission. They fund amazing restoration projects around the EU. Where are they getting their money from? <laughs> I don't know she's like that's not science that's fine yeah so it talks about money and i'm and i'm out um, no i don't i honestly don't know i'm afraid i'd have to google that for you yeah no worries i'm like Taxes, i said i'm probably. always tr- like my thing is like connecting the nature and the finance together as much as i can uh, it's really I interesting that. i need to learn more about that actually i think i think you're onto something there well, we, what, what's the point of spending money if we're not going to have awesome lives? And it's like when you're funding like life, like that's like, I don't know, that's like th- the purpose. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's like people spend money on like cars and st- uh, whatever. Um, I, wa- I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about beavers instead. Oh, man. W- what's going on with the beavers in England or the UK? You guys, you guys have loads of beavers, so I don't know if you guys are as excited about beavers as we are. I mean, in Colorado, do you have beavers? What's your beaver situation? I, I want to say that we do have beavers in Colorado, yeah. 
Okay, well, in the UK, we hunted beavers to extinction about 400 years ago. So we haven't had them as part of our landscape for a really long time. And that's a, that's a massive problem because actually beavers are one of the coolest creatures I've ever had the pleasure of learning about because they're keystone species. Not only do they just like live and thrive in a landscape, they physically maintain and create new landscapes, which are beneficial for things like fish and for insects, for water quality and for birds. So by building dams the way that beavers do, they just chuck on that that's what they do that's what they know and by coppicing trees they create these amazing wetland habitats which basically act like an ecological sponge and then everything else can live in it and it stores loads of water and it helps prevent like fires and flooding downstream and it helps improve water quality and there's basically nothing uh, that anyone can say to tell me that beavers are bad I've fully become a beaver believer I think um, but basically in the UK we've started reintroducing them in the last couple of years and the, the kind of challenge has been Let's talk to people about why beavers are really useful, uh, particularly if they're living wild, um, because obviously in some places you don't want a dam, some places you don't want them to remove trees, but you kind of, it's, it's, they're a really interesting vehicle for talking to people about managing the land, about the importance of wetlands and the importance of water quality and biodiversity, but also the importance of living with nature, because we, you know, we can't control a beaver but we have to understand that the beaver does a really integral job and we benefit heavily from having beavers back. So it's, it, they're really cool. They're really interesting to kind of springboard into lots of interesting conversations with people. And there's been some interesting research, actually, this might touch on something you're interested in. There's been research looking at um, the way that actually spending time in a beaver managed wetland has a positive impact on people's mental well-being as well. So now we're starting to work with doctors and social prescribing and green prescribing. So people that are going to doctors with feelings of anxiety and kind of need help managing those feelings and a toolkit. One of the things that we're doing is prescribing time spent in nature projects, including beaver wetlands, because we're seeing such a positive impact on people's well-being. And I just think that that's, that's awesome. There's such a cool case study for rewilding and giving nature space to recover in its own way. Well, they say that like dolphins or something is like the closest animal to like humans because of like their emotions and they're living in packs and stuff. But if you really want to like relate to an animal, beavers are the only animals I'm aware of that can actually physically change their environment. Um, well, I guess all animals do, but like really fundamentally change their environment like humans do. And you can kind of relate to them in the sense that like they wake up in the morning and they're like, oh got to go to work. And then they go and they, they do the juice, <laughs> yeah. got to build the next thing. And like, what are humans doing? We got to, got to innovate, got to build the next thing, got to do this, got to do that. And I'm guessing you guys killed them to make coats, perhaps? Coats, or? hats. Um, it was a lot for their pelts, but also um, there was a lot of beaver trade between the UK and the US. So um, there was a lot of this kind yeah. of happening on both sides of the pond, but also for castorium, which is an oil that is produced in a gland near their bum hole, which um, a lot mm -hmm. of people have been used in things like perfume. Yeah. So those, those two are the main things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to smell like beaver ass, you know? It must smell great to have, I think, to have, you know, to have fueled this entire industry. But yeah, I don't, I hope that I never smell it. Yeah. Um, so how did you find out about that project? Um, I've got beavers living wild uh, on the river near me. And I knew someone that worked with one of the organizations that was looking to restore beaver habitats and bring them back to selected projects in the UK. And I saw some of the field signs actually when I was out and about and I was like, dude, I really think this looks like there's a beaver here and um, got in touch with them and was like, am I going mad or do I live near a beaver? And they were like, oh my God, we think you live near beavers. There seems to be this wild population here. So I've started working with them from that. And then now I help them with some of their comms stuff and produce their podcast. And um, yeah, it's, it's really cool to be in that kind of space with people who are actively working to on a large scale, restore parts of the UK. Cool. So speaking of podcasts, give me the give me the thesis. What what is your podcast called? Uh, what's like the idea of the show, and how did you get started on it? So my main podcast, uh, the one that you found, is called For What It's Earth, and essentially what we do is every every kind of episode, we look at a different topic. So whether that's rewilding, cryptocurrency plastics, fast fashion, growing your own vegetables, um, a totally different topic. We have a look at the background. We have a look at the issues that are being faced, what's being done globally around them or what could be being done. But most importantly, what individuals can do if they wanted to get involved with tackling this particular topic. And the idea was not only to talk to people about environmental issues, 
Um, but to be able to give people feelings and a bit of a toolkit towards becoming a bit more pro-environmental and feeling like they've got a little bit more agency over the things they're learning about. Um, and it's really cool. So we, we do this thing called What One Good Thing Have You Done For The Planet This Week? Uh, when myself and whoever's hosting the episode with me, we have to say, you know, we've done a good thing. And not only does that hold that to hold us both to an account, it means that we're sharing ideas constantly for individual action. And then our listeners now send in the things that they've been doing so we can celebrate their sustainability journeys and provide like a really positive kind of space for individuals starting or continuing their journey into doing better things for the planet. Um, and it's, it's amazing to hear some of the things that they've been doing. They give me ideas and often they do better things than I do. But yeah, it's, it's just about being a positive space for, for learning and tackling eco anxiety by action. Isn't it always cool to help people who are smarter than you? It's such, so such cool. Yeah, yeah, so cool. Um, what have you What have you learned from doing the show? Like, what are some of the big takeaways? Whether it's experience oh, or just general scientific knowledge. Um, I've learned that banks are this. Uh, while you've been talking about finance, one of the things that blew my mind, which I should have known but didn't was that one of the best things that we can do as individuals is ask what is happening with our money because as you've said we're, we're kind of taught to make money and buy new things uh, or just make money and put it in a bank and that's kind of how we value our worth in society is how much money we're making so everyone's constantly worried about how much money is coming in and they're putting in the bank but you could be living the greenest life elsewhere and doing all sorts of good things but if where you've stored away your little nest egg and if you if the bank that you've invested that in is investing that in fossil fuels tobacco you know all sorts of schemes that do not align with your values at all it can completely undermine everything that you're doing so one of the biggest things i now talk to people about in terms of what you could do as an individual is asking what is your bank spending its money on and can you switch to a greener bank because then Whatever it is that you've made, whatever it is that you've tucked away for a rainy day is also supporting something else. So we've got banks in the UK that are investing in like community energy projects and all these kind of things where I'm so much happier knowing that my very small bank account is doing something that positively aligns with what I try to do in the rest of my life. So that's that's kind of one of the biggest things for me this year that I've learned. That's such a fantastic point. I, I, I love that. And there are new financial institutions coming out uh, that are, are focused on, on that kind of stuff. Who, who do you uh, like in the UK as far as like financial institutions? We've got a bank called Triodos, which I use, which is, which is brilliant. And they focus everything that they've done on sustainability and community ventures. Awesome. I don't know who you've got in the US as an equivalent. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different projects coming out. We had like Clean Energy Credit Union on the podcast. They focus on financing clean energy projects. Um, JP Morgan Chase is the worst financial institution for funding fossil fuels and oil wow, and gas, just, just to keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's like Carbon Zero Financial was on the show. They're releasing a credit card that specifically tracks your carbon footprint and helps you offset it automatically. Um, we're going to see this space just continue continue to blow up because there's People are interested um, personally and also financially in getting into environmental stewardship. So we'll we'll kind of continue to track that as the show goes on. Before, I wanted to say one thing that I forgot to say. Instead of making hats out of beavers, we should be using algae. Because like I know that like like polyester and stuff is made out of petroleum. I don't know if it would work, but like it seems like algae can make plastic. So if we can make clothes out of algae the, the clothes would be carbon neutral as well hemp i'm trying to get someone who's working on hemp as well but um yeah i don't know i just i figured i would throw that in um cool concept i know i mean we, I, we can definitely make things like fake plastic bags out of, yeah. kind of algae products I've, I've never gone so far as to connect that into clothing but that's an interesting concept yeah. Why I literally just thought is that thought of that as we were talking about beavers. I don't know the science of the ethanols and the whatever. It might not work, but um, I know you can definitely make like sneaker products. So it's like, why not shirts? Yeah, um, sure. Compostable anything, clothes. I like it. Right. Compostable or just carbon negative everything. I'm like all in. Like anything that you make that is drawing down CO2 at this point in 2022, I'm like all in. I'm bullish on that. We need that shit. Um <laughs> So the la last question before I ask the last question is how much responsibility do you think 
legacy emitters like my country and yours, the US and the UK, have to tackle climate change mitigation compared to like emerging economies. And I want to bring up the concept of legacy emissions because people point the finger and there are issues with China and the US and human rights violations. But when talking specifically about CO2, People point the finger at China and say they're the largest emitter, which is true. But when you talk about cumulative emissions, how much CO2 has been released into our atmosphere, our two countries are the are the big boys. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that at the end here. Oh, we're ending with a massive question. And I, I, I mean, I wish I had a really intelligent answer for you, but I think... I think that you're right. It's really easy to play the blame game. And I know when I speak to a lot of people who are not as environmentally open-minded, I think, as I am, the easiest thing for them to do when I talk to them about personal responsibility and our country's responsibility is to point the blame game. And they say, well, what is the point of me changing my energy supply to a renewable energy supplier when, you know, India or China produces X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, it doesn't do any harm to not do it. Like, can you, like, what, what, it doesn't do you any harm to switch to a renewable energy supplier so why are you why is that an issue i don't understand the the roadblock there just switch your renewable energy supplier it's not like i'm asking you to climb a mountain but um it's it is, it is really interesting and i do i do think that we should shoulder a huge amount more of the responsibility because like you said that not only have we released a ton of a ton millions and millions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere We've also disseminated the technology and the ways of life and the systems by which new developing countries are having to live within. And all of those systems are also carbon emitting systems. So we've kind of forced them to develop in line with what we do. We haven't really let them develop in their own way. So I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, but I think one of the key roles that we do, yes, obviously, is to draw down as much as we can. But also, I think if we're technological leaders like and, and science and research leaders like we, we're fortunate our countries both are we should be making things open source and we should be developing things that are not commercialized necessarily in the same way when we can share knowledge that is a it's such a global problem and it's so urgent that we take massive action now it it frustrates me that you know solutions should be shared globally because everybody is going to suffer and not in the same not in the same way. So our countries are both obviously going to have problems associated by climate change, but we are one of the wealthier nations in, in the world and we're not going to have the same amount or the same level of devastation that could potentially be caused by a lot, to a lot of the developing countries by which we should take much more responsibility having basically caused. I don't know if I said that in a very coherent way, but I'm still untangling my thoughts about it, to be honest. What's, what's yeah. your perspective on that? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like a naive optimist, radical kind of thinking guy at the same time, not trying to force people to do things. But when it comes to my idea, I think we should be pulling it all out. I mean, we have like people, Americans complain about their $50,000 a year salary and their steak being cooked medium instead of medium rare. Like it's ridiculous when you look at the scheme. I, you know, I always, I look at things in a, on a global perspective. Now I, I try to get down to like the microscopic, like the microbacteria in the soil all the way up to like the humans or, oh, I mean, if you keep going up, you reach all the carbon. I, I, I really think that the U S should take this, take a stand and find a way to benefit from drawing down more CO2 than it emits. I don't know. I'm trying, always trying to think about how to make it economically viable, but I do, I, I don't see it's not, re, people think it's not realistic. I, I just don't, I don't think net zero is enough based on this legacy emission issue. I think we are responsible for the planet. I specifically, I, I know, I know you're in the UK and I mentioned the UK. I'm obviously biased because I'm in the US, but I really think that we not only do we demand the culture, you know, demand the culture, we have such a huge impact. We've had such a huge impact over the past two centuries. And there's the issue of this um, changing world order and the US potentially losing its reserve currency status. I think there are things we can do to maintain our position as leaders of the world in, in, in the States. And I think one of the things should be really taking the lead on fostering a better world. And I think the easiest metric that you can measure is like pull the stuff out of the air that's killing all the life on the earth. Now, it's not that simple, of course, but that's one input that people can wrap their heads around. 
And I, I personally, I, in the U S I don't think net zero is enough. And that's why I asked you that question about corporations and carbon credits before I'm not, uh, I'm not, not cool with it. I mean, I'm like very dedicated to living a personal carbon negative life, but that's not going to do, it's about how many people you can get involved. And so, um, I'm in the States so I can, you know, help people in the States at this point that that's, that's what I think. Uh, yeah, I think I, I definitely agree with you there. We do have a responsibility and a much greater responsibility. Yeah, for the monetary system, for the livelihoods of people, for the way people think about what it means to be a human. There is BS on the TV, colorful advertisements, sexualization. Like it's, it's a lot of it's coming from our countries and then like in, and spreading to the whole planet. So if you are in a position of power, you have a responsibility to be a, a steward of life and of others. And that's, that's what I think, but I'm just one dude. And I appreciate your time on the podcast today. Any final pieces of advice for young folks who want to improve our environment? Uh, just start, just crack on, just get going. Don't wait. There's nothing to wait for. We don't have time to wait. And anything that you do is a good thing. I think as long as you start that journey of looking through everything that you do through the lens of, could this be better? I think then you're on the right track. You know, find a community, find people to talk to. Don't lean into eco anxiety too much because that can be completely crippling. And I know that's really hard to say. Don't lean into it too much, but be aware that eco anxiety is is prevalent and maybe you're already feeling it. But one of the best things to do if you are feeling eco anxiety to combat those feelings is to take action. And action can come in many, many forms. And you can, as long as you start making small changes, don't try and do it all at once, make small changes so that they become habits and then they become lifelong habits. I think if you try and do everything in one go, you're, you're just going to set yourself up for failure and that's a very stressful place to be in. Um, right. I think, yeah, I think just, just, just start, just start talking to people to start learning. Don't try and carry the entire world on your shoulders because you're going to feel completely overwhelmed and it's really, really tough. But as long as you're starting to do something, you're having conversations with people and you're working towards something that to you feels purposeful i think then you're onto you're onto a good start yeah and then you can have that that compounding effect where can people find uh and follow like your work uh i'm on social media at emma brisdian but also if you want to listen to my podcast which i think is a i should probably have plugged it then actually i think that's a good place to start if you're looking at wanting to start figuring out what your sustainability journey looks like for you then we're for what it's earth podcast and you can find that on all major podcast platforms and in the description of this video, Emma, thanks oh, so much for taking, you're welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been really, really lovely to chat to you. Absolutely. And this has been Ethan Shapiro, any old pleb and Emma. Thank you so much. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.